Hi, my name is Mike Overstreet. I'm the director of growth groups and service here, and I am going to be teaching today. And whenever I teach, I like to usually give people a little bit of tidbits about myself. And if you know me at all, you know that I am a huge film geek, like a major film nerd. But what I really love are movies that have been so important to our society that they have shaped our culture. I just think this is really fascinating. So there's a couple of examples. The first one is Jaws. This is the most well-known one, right? After Jaws came out, tourism to beaches plummeted. People were so afraid of sharks that they stopped going on vacation to beaches. The next one, Bambi. A lot of people don't know this about Bambi, but after Bambi came out, deer hunting in some states dropped by 50%, because people were afraid that they were killing Bambi's mom. Next one, The Godfather. This is my favorite example. So the source material behind The Godfather was a book, and it was written by somebody who actually didn't know anything about the mafia. He kind of just made it up, how he thought the mafia would act, and he romanticized it. So what you see in The Godfather is full of error, pretty much, except for it was so popular that mafiosos watched it and started acting like it <laughs> in the mob. <laughs> which is hilarious to me, right? So they actually started shaping like, actual mafia families around how they acted with Don Corleone, right? And this is a, a personal one, this isn't really culture, but Alien. My father showed me Alien when I was like nine or 10. <laughs> and I went to bed every night for weeks with my blankie over my face because I was afraid aliens were gonna lay eggs in my chest that would shoot out. I, I still do that to this day. And I think I'm fascinated by these examples because they show us the profound power of narrative in our lives. You see, we as human beings are what I call narrative-driven beings. That is, if you think about your lives and you start talking to people about it, do you consider your life a list of facts and dates? Or do you weave a story out of your experiences with a beginning, a middle, an end, heroes and villains, climaxes and struggle, right? We create narrative to understand our lives and our world. And that means movies like this, stories like this are powerful because they get into our imagination and they begin to shape our identity. And it actually begins to impact our actions because we find the stories to be so important. But there's also a twist in that because if you notice, these stories don't still impact our world in the same way. Each of these movies eventually faded. They became great movies, they're still watched today, but their ability to change the way people live eventually stopped being so strong. And I believe that that is because reality caught up to them. People began going to the beach again because not all beaches have 25-foot-long great white sharks in them. Not all deer are Bambi's mother, which justifies us shooting them, I guess. Just kidding. The life of the mafioso is not romantic because they are sociopaths. And eventually, killing people just stops being so pretty. And aliens won't actually lay eggs in my face. I have to say that one, too. To put it succinctly, though these stories captured a time and a feeling, a zeitgeist, even a piece of the human condition, eventually they stopped being capable 
of making sense fully of our reality. And because of that, they stopped being capable fully of teaching us how to navigate it. So they faded away, and people stopped living within them. And it's actually this understanding of narrative that a few years ago really changed for me how I understood spirituality, faith, the story of God, the Bible, even the church. You see, I ran into this theologian named Stanley Hauerwas, who was very important in the 20th century. And what Stanley Hauerwas argued was that inside every community is two things, a people and a story. And if you think about this, you'll, you'll find it to be true. Every country you've ever heard of, every nation, every organization, there is a people defined by some commonality. Ethnic commonality, historical commonality, land, right? And then they tell each other stories about what it means to be that kind of person. The American dream, American exceptionalism, just a couple from our own environment. And they use that to make sense of what their community is. And what was fascinating to me is that he argued that if you look at the church in Scripture, it's one of the few unique communities in all of history that only had one thing, a narrative, a shared story. That when you looked at what the church was comprised of, it was comprised of people who had no business being together. They didn't have a shared people. You had Jews and Gentiles, sworn enemies, rich and poor, the oppressed and their oppressors. You had tax collectors and rebels. And yet, they came together and formed one body, one community, for only one reason, that they shared the same story. And not just any story, but a story that comes out of Easter, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The story so moved them that it transcended lines and they believed it so deeply that they literally started navigating their reality by it and living within it together as if it were true. And what I would summarize this as is what we call embodied narrative. That is a narrative or a story that is so true, so powerful, so real, so believed, so capable of defining reality that it stops existing in the area of thought and starts becoming embodied or lived in the world through the people who believe it. So for him, Hauerwas, the church was only the church as it was intended to be when it created a people who held onto the story so deeply that they take God's story and build it into their lives. They make it their story. But more than that, the church is only the church when it is the body of Christ, which means it is the physical embodied representation of the Christ story here and now. Which brought about a radical conclusion. Because what Hauerwas would argue is that the church is only the church if it embodies this story in its present environment if it lives and navigates the world by it. And when it stops doing that, it stops being the capital C church. It may still be a community, it may be a country club, it may be a fun concert, but it stops 
being the church without the story. And that's where we're going to go in this series. We're going to look at the church as a narrative community. We're going to look at what it means to take God's story and make it our story in an embodied and lived out way. And we're going to look at key parts of the story. We're going to look at the parts that are crucial to understand what we need to embody if we are truly going to call ourselves a community that is the church. We're going to look at the embodied narrative of mission. We're going to look at the embodied narrative of healing, forgiveness, reconciliation, passing on the story to the next generation. But today we're going to look at what I think is the most foundational story that if we do not embody, we cannot be the church. And that is hope. Now you see, before we can even define hope, we have to do some separating from some common human problems. Mainly, that we as human beings often confuse our expectations with our hope. What do I mean by that? I mean that we, as human beings, develop a story for how the world is supposed to go, right? It's either given to us or we make it ourselves. And then we believe in that story so much, we start creating expectations for how things need to play out for us to see that story reach its conclusion the way that we think it needs to. To make our world all right, we must see X, Y, or Z happen. Those are our expectations. And then we act, we live in that story so deeply that it actually starts, if you follow me, to change our actions because we're trying to see it make or become reality. And that doesn't seem like a problem until you really get down to the roots of it. Because when our hope is based on those expectations, there are some serious issues that take place. For one, it becomes tied too much to false things. When my hope is based on my expectations, my hope becomes tied to my small, limited perspective and worldview. How I think things are supposed to go. My hope becomes tied to my ability to control, to make things, people, events go the way I want, because that's what's going to make the world better. That's what's going to make my life better. It becomes tied to my circumstances. I want what I want when I want it right now. And when I don't have my circumstances met, it's a problem, because the world's not going the way it's supposed to go. And more than anything, the biggest problem at all is that when my hope is based on my expectations, it cannot handle suffering. Because suffering is always coming along uninvited. At times, we don't want it. It's always coming in ways we can't control and in circumstances we can't get rid of by willing them away. Is anyone following me? See, when my hope is tied to these things, these expectations, we are crushed when they go unmet in the face of suffering. I don't know if you've ever been like this, but when I have my hope tied to my expectations and they are utterly dashed, my entire story from my world seems to not make sense anymore. It's totally off the rails. I can't even make sense of reality. And I'm usually left devastated because it feels like the floor for how I understood my life just opened up underneath me. And I deeply believe that this issue is central to the narrative of Christ. That at its core, in God's story, they are seeking to resolve the human dilemma of expectations being confused with hope. And they're going to do this by giving us a new story 
and definition of hope that I think is transformative. To explore this, we're going to rely on 1 Peter. You see, Peter is writing this letter to a church that is struggling with persecution. And not like the light kind. The kind where you have detached yourself from Roman culture, from Greek culture, and people don't like that very much. So they are suffering. They are in despair. And he responds by giving them a story of hope that I want to unpack here today. So we start in 1 Peter verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into, that, and, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And I want to only sit with this very briefly, because I want to just walk through and point out some very obvious differences between Peter's definition of hope and our definition of hope when they're based on our expectations for our world. The first one is he calls it living. Hope, this new hope is a living kind of hope. It is active, it is present, it is working in the world, which means two things. It's not a hope that is distant or cold. It is not something that is, you know, a nice idea, but it's something that is present and really working in our reality. And more importantly to me, it's not one of our imagination. It's not stuck in my head. It is outside of myself. And thus it can move in its own ways in our world. The second thing I would point out is he describes this hope as somehow giving a human being a new birth, which is common language in the Gospels. Jesus always talked about new birth when he was talking about someone who so was engaged in the kingdom of God that they were transformed in a way that could only be described as you looking at them and saying, that's not the Mike I used to know. Being born so truly in a transformative way that we would call it new life. So this hope has a transformative power. Next, he contrasts it with things that are perishing, spoiling, and fading. Which, if you're anything like me, everything in my world is perishing, spoiling, or fading. Nothing in this world lasts. Not my job, not my family, not even what I call me, both in my identity and in this body. They are fading. But there's something, well, and also, our expectations and circumstances, right? Even the good ones, when I get them, don't last. So there's something about this hope that lasts and can survive beyond all circumstance. It's something that is enduring. It is something that is capable of transcending all other things. And it's something that is beyond myself. Peter uses this language of inheritance in heaven to describe it. And when we hear this term, we often get it wrong in the American church. You see, when we hear inheritance in heaven, we think it's something out there that we get when we die, which, if you're like me, isn't very useful in the midst of suffering. 
So it's something abstract. But if you know anything about the early church, that isn't what they understood heaven as being. For them, heaven, the kingdom of God, was where God's rule and reign was realized. So anywhere where God's rule and authority was represented fully was where heaven overlapped with our reality. Which is pretty radical because that's what the disciples thought Jesus was doing in his ministry. That's what they thought the church was supposed to be. They said Jesus came into this world as the Messiah, as the Christ, to inaugurate the kingdom of God now. Yes, it would be fully realized in the next age when Christ would come again, but it was present in the spirit and in the church wherever Christ's story became the church's story and God's rule was recognized. Which means that if our hope from heaven is that, then it is available and it is present, it is unchangeable, and it is eternal which, thank God, means it goes beyond our circumstances. So we have a hope that is alive, it is active, it is moving, it is present. It is transformative to the point that if you embody it, someone will say, that's not the same you. It's a new life in that person. And it is internal, it is unfailing, and it is beyond circumstance. Sign me up, right? I have bad news about how we get to it. You might change your mind a little bit. So to understand this hope, we have to start with what Peter started with, which is this resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He points to this event, to this resurrection story, and says this is how we define where this hope comes from and what it looks like. And to understand what he's getting at, we need to understand to some degree his first century context. You see, when Jesus came and pronounced himself as the Messiah, that was not a new idea in the first century. The Jews had been waiting for hundreds of years for this Old Testament figure called the Messiah. He was, what they read in their scriptures, the one who would go and make things right in the name of God. And they put their hope in this person because if you know your first century history, they had been left under Roman rule now for over a hundred years. And like us, they began to confuse their hope with their expectations and their circumstances. You see, they read this Messiah. They read the phrase, make things right, and they said that that must mean that God's going to do things the way we want it and in our way. So that means the Messiah is going to restore Israel as a sovereign nation. That means the Messiah is going to make things right by defeating the Romans, God's enemies. That means the Messiah is going to be a warrior king. And these expectations became the hope that they lived on, which was going swimmingly up until that Messiah got nailed to a Roman cross. Jesus was supposed to destroy the Romans, not be killed by the Romans. For their expectations, a dead Messiah was a failed Messiah. Which means when Jesus got nailed to that cross, so did their hope. But we know that that wasn't the end of the story. They were missing something so crucial to the story that they didn't know where their hope came from. You see, in the human story, death is failure. 
Death is me no longer being able to fight for my life. But in God's story, in God's story, it was somehow victory. That in the story of God, death was always followed by resurrection, new life. And that marked a fundamental change in how the church saw their world when they got that fact right. Jesus never intended to defeat the Romans. He wasn't looking for small potatoes like that. He was going to the disease, not the symptom. He came to defeat evil itself. And he knew, he knew the deepest truth of all, that we cannot defeat evil with the tools of evil. That evil is only victorious when it makes us like it, which is especially easy when we try to fight evil with evil. And Jesus understood this, so he stood before evil and he said, do your worst. He said, bring it on. And they threw everything they had at him, humiliation, pain, suffering, denial, betrayal, death. And once it was done, once it had used every power it had, he stood resurrected to new life and said, you are powerless over me because you will not change me. And that suddenly the story of the cross and the resurrection taught us a new story. It taught us that one that looks at evil sees it for what it is, what it wants to be in our world, and totally disarms it with a new set of tools. Love, forgiveness, grace, reconciliation, mercy, hope. And it says, you will not defeat me because I have resurrection life. And for Peter, this changed everything. Peter was just like those other people at the time. He was following Jesus because he said, Jesus, you're going to be king. Jesus, you're going to make me successful. I can't wait to be on the right hand of God when we conquer those stupid Romans. I can't wait to win. The only problem was all those expectations died when his circumstances failed him. And he denies Jesus three times. He betrays his closest friend and he forgets who he is. And his hope dies with him. But Peter, what we find in this letter just had the wrong understanding of hope. In that moment, Peter found this new definition. A new story of hope was born, one that could look at evil, it could look at suffering, it could look at grief and still proclaim hope. Because the nature of God as redeemer, as saver, as resurrector meant that God's story said that evil would never have the final word not in God's story. And Peter and many others like this discovered a hope that could handle, it could transcend, it could redeem, it could do what the one thing my expectations never could, and that is bear the weight of suffering. I don't know if you're like me, but my hope ends at suffering. When I've failed too much, when I've fallen too short, when I've sinned too greatly, when I hurt too much, when things don't go my way. That's where my hope dies. We feel it perish and fade, and we tell ourselves that all-too-common lie that I am suffering because God is not with me. But we read about a different hope. We continue in verse 6. In all this you greatly rejoice, 
Though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come to show that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him, you believe in him or are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith and the salvation of your souls. Peter describes a hope that somehow lets us find joy and glorious rejoicing in our suffering. And I believe, again, the church has often read these verses wrong. We read this to mean that suffering is somehow inherently good. We should seek it out. We need more of it because it refines us. Or we read it to say, when you believe in Jesus, you can just smile through pain. Life is good. (laughs) Ha ha, slap a sticker on your car. There's only one problem. Neither of these are inherently good and neither of them are healthy. And the responses that they produce when we ignore or we smile through or we try to just get rid of our suffering, they produce unhealthy responses too. Denial, wallowing, projection of our pain onto others, self-loathing, shame, condemnation of ourselves and those around us. And this is not what Peter is getting at. I don't think Peter looked at the cross. I don't think he looked at his betrayal. I don't think he looked at his failures and said, I want more of that. I don't think he said, oh, that's a good thing. Or I don't think he said, maybe I'll just smile through this as his best friend hung on a Roman cross. I think that Peter deeply grieved his suffering. He sat with it. He mourned it. He felt it. He didn't see it as inherently good. But what he did find is a resurrection hope that could change his posture towards it. It could change his posture towards suffering and what it could mean for the story of a human being who believed in resurrected life. You see, what I, Peter, I think he found was there was a way of looking at suffering, not as something that needs to be escaped or removed or denied or ignored, but as something that could be redeemed and resurrected in light of hope. Namely, he viewed it with an unshakable belief that in God's story, death is followed by resurrection. Because let's be honest, that is what suffering truly is. It's small, spiritual deaths. When I tell myself I'm a certain kind of person who would never do that thing, and then I do that thing, I die inside a little bit, who I thought I was. When I say, I can't live through this circumstance, and then it comes my way, and my world doesn't make sense. When I find out that I'm not in control because a suffering makes me feel powerless. Or when I find out that my narrative of self-reliance, all I need is myself, doesn't really hold up to my reality. Has anyone been there before? You see, Peter found a hope that could deal with those spiritual deaths because it could deal with all death in a new way. Peter found a hope that understood and could hold the cross, that God himself understood our suffering, felt our suffering, experienced our suffering, and promised us that he would be in it and redeem us through it, because that is how God's story ends. 
He looked at this story and he found a hope that understood that what it meant about God, ourselves, our story, our world, is that our moments of death, despair, loss, betrayal, in those moments we can rest unshakably on a hope that transcends circumstance because God is the God that brings life from death. And once he found this hope, it lit up everything. That in the moments of true pain, we have a God who is suffering with us, for us, alongside us. We are not alone. He has not left us. We find that our God suffered to the point of death, looked at the cross and said, yes, I am there, which means I am everywhere. Because if we can find our God there, then we can find him in this too. That the fundamental story of God is one that bends eternally towards redemption. And thus, eternally towards hope. And that is why Peter uses this metaphor, I think, of metalwork, of of being heated until the point that the impurities of you melt away, that you can become soft and crafted into something new, hammered out in the fire. Because I think for Peter, the process of suffering was a burning away of his expectations, his false hopes, his desires to control. Thus, the burning away of that sense of self that he just didn't want to lose was not a loss because what he found was that the process led him to the other side where he found surrender, growth, trust, new life. That his suffering didn't get to break him, it didn't get to define him, that like the video said, he is not the summation of the worst thing he ever did. Because suffering, though it burned him and hurt him, did not get the final word. Because he knew a true story in which God whispers to every person, this too can be redeemed. That his suffering with the right story could help shape him into who he was made to be. For Peter, once the false hopes of this life were burned away. He was left with the truest definition of resurrection hope there is, trust grounded in the very nature of the God who writes our story. Not a Sunday school kind of trust, not a smile through it kind of trust, the real surrendered kind of trust that has been through death and came out the other side. The kind of trust you find when you say this thing is unbearable and then it happens and you find a way to bear it. The kind of trust that you find at rock bottom and you hear God whisper, I still love you and I am even here. And on the other side of that pain, on the other side of that journey, that growth, that surrender, that trust, on the other side of what we with trembling call death of ourself, God says, that's victory. That's resurrection. And that story of hope became Peter's story. And we are invited to make it our story. 
That is how Peter, I believe, is able to rejoice in the midst of suffering. Hope, trust, a willingness to die to ourselves because we trust and hope in a God who brings new life from death. That's the story we're invited into to believe, to embody, to live out in our world. Will we believe it enough to live it? And it's so crucial that we get this right. Because is there anything our world needs right now more than hope? We need to get the story right individually. It gives us a story that lets us face our pain, our hurts, our wounds, and we say, this will not have the last word on my life. It allows us to look at the imperfections of our world, of ourselves, and we can face them, we can hold them, we can heal them without judgment, without condemnation, without projection, without denial, without despair. Because we can truly and with confidence say that no matter what we've done, this too can be redeemed. Because in God's story, all things can be redeemed. That's the kind of hope that can give us new life. And we need to take it seriously as a church that we embody that story too. It is the bedrock of everything. If we cannot get this right, then we will be wrong. Without it, we learn that we must hate imperfection. We must reject what is broken. We must attack those that hurt. And when we do that, we cannot be the church because at the bedrock of our story is a hope that believes in the resurrection of the dead. When we get this wrong, we fail to be who we are, but when we get it right, we can be a community of vulnerability that is not afraid to share brokenness because it does not get to say who I am. We can be a community of love because we're not so obsessed with control that we crush broken people for not being who we want them to be. We can be a community of grace because we know that suffering is part of our story and it will always be there until the end, but it does not get the last word, which means we can give grace for it. We can be a community hope because that means that everyone who walks through that door no matter how broken how ugly how wounded how mean we can look at them and say this too shall be redeemed because our honesty our love our grace our mercy our forgiveness isn't based on our small perspective our need for control our circumstances or our expectations it is fully and completely sold out to a story of hope which means it is unshakable will we be the church embodying a story of hope because when we do when we live that part of the story, it becomes what we were meant to be because we can look at a place like this and we can see that it heals people, it gives them hope, and it can set them free. And that is good news. Amen.